Sweden have become experts in manufacturing pop music that the world wants to listen to. And it's all outlined in a new series called This Is Pop on Netflix and dedicates an episode to Swedish music. It's called The Stockholm Syndrome. And we're not talking just ABBA. Do you recall Ace of Bass, who apparently used to test and tweak their tunes at the local nightclub until they achieved the sound likely to get the most people dancing? And what about this band here, Rock Set? This is pop focuses on the wave of bands that swept the nation in the mid-90s. Incidentally, one of the world's biggest songwriters is Swedish also, Max Martin, second only to George Martin, who wrote Britney Spears' Hit Me Baby One More Time, the Backstreet Boys' I Want It That Way, and co-wrote Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. Also, Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl. Independent singer-songwriter Hazlitt said, melodically, Swedish songwriters and producers are so unique, and I think it comes from their language, as that too is very melodic. So, Russell, I know that you're a bit of a music writer and journalist. Swedish music, they know the hits. They do, yeah, and, and, and as you said, it wasn't just a one-off with ABBA. It's ever since. Ever since. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I must say, I'm very excited about that series. The, this it's, is isn't it right great? in my wheelhouse. Is it? Yeah. Oh, so what of the eight series? Because it's Britpop. You, you'll be a Britpop person, aren't you? No, no? The Britpop's probably the one that interests me least, but there's a, there's a festivals <laughs> one. and Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really interested in this. I, I, I love music documentaries. Yeah. Good hit there, uh, uh, Ruth. I have to Listen say, to your heart. No, gu- you can't get past a bit of rock guilty set. Guilty of a rock set yes. CD in, uh, back in the day. Yeah, guilty, I, 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 yeah, chose that, I chose that for you. Yes, thank yeah. you. Yes. Uh, you're on the panel at uh, National 25 to 5. Uh, loving your company this afternoon. Now, I must, uh, regarding the Friday mailbag, can I bring this up before we move on to the next topic? Because we had uh, quite a discussion this week on uh, really what's going on in mental health. You had a $1.9 billion uh, announcement that was uh, announced a great fanfare some time ago. Uh, but where is that money going if so? Now, uh, we had an email from Annie, who is a South Island crisis nurse. So Annie wrote him uh, from the South Island. And this is, this is her email to us. Families and supports are the ones who take up the slack, are often already fatigued from their loved one. In my district, one crisis respite bed, an emergency emergency department that does not triage away, one registrar after hours to cover crisis, the hospital, and five, yes, five mental health wards. In physical health, there is an escalation pathway when beds are blocked, which recruits management and extra resourcing. Nothing in mental health. The money in primary health is only just getting cracking. Now, if you assess and engage more in primary, what do you get? More acute GP referrals. I don't want to see the situation hijacked by discussion around what are the building project timelines. There is a desperate need on the front lines now. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Quite a powerful email, isn't it? Mm. It is, yeah. But it goes to all of my questions. Where does the putia go? It should be in the community helping these people, not mm. sitting in ministry buildings, not getting to where it needs to be. Well, it's, it's sitting there unspent at the moment, which, which is just absolutely maddening. There's the, the, I mean, $2 billion in that budget three years ago. Oh, mm. And, the, you know, they talk about whole-of-government response. We should be delivering services to people who need them right now because we know that then it becomes an education problem, a justice problem, a physical and mental health problem. 
humans are complex beings. We mm. need to wrap care around them when it's required rather than waiting for it to be exacerbated. Kia ora both. Now, uh, just into some breaking news here and uh, uh, another ongoing issue. There is raw sewage uh, running down Woodward Street in... Wellington. Wellington. <laughs> Uh, and on to Lambton Quay. So there is another pipeline failure. So uh, a newsflash just come to hand. There's raw sewage running down Woodward Street in Wellington and on to Lambton Quay. So there is another Wellington uh, pipe failure there. So do take care uh, in that area. Poor Wellington. Uh, yes, yeah. yes, indeed. Um, and I'm sure that uh, we'll keep you updated across uh, news and into checkpoint on that issue there also. And you can text us what are you seeing, 2101 if you are indeed in that area. The number of prison inmates involved in alcohol and drug treatment programs has fallen from 4,300 in 2017 to just 928 prisoners. The drop has happened since Corrections cut its brief and intermediate alcohol and drug treatment programs. About half of all crime is committed by people under the influence of drugs and alcohol and 87% of all prisoners have experienced a problem with drugs and alcohol in their lifetime. So uh, for more of this, I'm joined by People Against Prisons Aotearoa spokesperson Emily Rakatea. Tēnā Emily. Are you with us? Yes, I am. Oh, nice, t- nice to have you on the programme. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> so look, what, what do you make of this really quite significant drop in numbers for alcohol and drug treatment programmes in prisons? Yeah, I mean, even I was surprised. I, uh, you know, I'm just a criminologist rather than a linguist, but I, I would expect a department calling itself corrections would consider itself to have some kind of responsibility to help rehabilitate people. But uh, Kelvin's been pretty much just saying we decided to stop doing most drug and alcohol counselling in 2018, and we didn't replace it with anything. Uh, so we're we're pretty astonished. Or at least replace it with more intensive programs. That's what Calvin Davis has said. It's fallen, but we're replacing it with more intensive treatment programs. Well, that's the argument, but the the number of enrolments in intensive programs has actually dropped even since 2017. Uh, But in 2017, it was still only 283 people in intensive programs out of a prison population of more than 10,000. So uh, prison has never been a place where we rehabilitate people. Uh, It's not one now, and I don't think it ever can be. Uh, the minister didn't want to put a target in place for how many prisoners should be uh, accessing drug and alcohol treatment, uh, Emily. I mean, do you think there should be some sort of target? Uh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we hear very often from people in prison, uh, we publish a human rights newsletter for incarcerated people called Take No Prisoners. And one of the main things people write to us about is that their parole uh, board has said, yep, you can go home as soon as you've completed a drug and alcohol counselling program, and they just can't get access to these programs. So the right. decision to restrict access is separating mothers from babies, uh, keeping families apart, and keeping people in prison, which is a very untherapeutic environment. Mm, Ruth right. Money, that seems uh, to be, well, I mean, look at the numbers, it's quite, a, the drop is significant. It's utter madness, and, um, you know, Last week we just had the Crime and Victims Survey come out. Uh, 37% of all uh, offences for family violence involved alcohol. 52% involve alcohol and drugs. So back to our family violence epidemic we have in New Zealand, but we won't try and help these people. So it's related, you say? It, it is absolutely related. And then we you know, send them out. They finally are allowed to get out. Normally at end of sentence, as Emily says, because parole board won't let them out before they've done the course. And we wonder why it's a revolving door, because we haven't given them any skills behind the wire or in the community to learn and get off the 
their criminality, I guess, is linked often to alcohol and drugs. Emily? Uh, yeah, it absolutely is. And I think it, it really just shows that we're treating prisons as warehouses for uh, the poorest people in society, people who've never had a shot. Um, and then people go out, come back, go out, come back um, with no real strategy in place to try to solve the fundamental problems driving crime. Disingenuous of the um, minister to infer that things have got better um, when actually the numbers overall have dropped. Russell? Uh, I mean, that. It may be, as Corrections is contending, that, that the short courses were just box ticking and they wanted to replace it with something better. Mm. But why haven't yeah. we seen that? And, and this drives me particularly mad with the stuff I, I tend to cover um, because I would like to see all drug use and possession decriminalised in New Zealand and you cannot mm. do that without comprehensive support services. There has to be... you know, We talk about a health-based um, response there actually has to be a health-based response to use. And at the moment, we're not there, and it doesn't seem we're getting there. Mm. Emily? Uh, Yeah, and when we see that um, countries that have switched to a public health response to issues like addiction, um, all social outcomes are better. Uh, Incidences of victimisation go down, use goes down, addiction goes down, violence overall tends to go down. Uh, It's flying in the face of intentional evidence. Uh, it doesn't seem to be based on any kind of international evidence. Um, it's worse than it was before. Uh, frankly, it seems like Kelvin kind of just gave up on trying to fix this in 2018. Although he might say... Nobody would notice. He might say just how effective are these short, sharp courses. We need to relook at the whole system and do more intensive courses. We need to perhaps design the courses better. I wish he would. <laughs> yeah, I wish he Indeed. would. <laughs> Yeah, it's the kind of thing that you can't do in a, in a prison. And we talk to people about this. Uh, prisons are full of drugs and they're miserable places to be. People want to use drugs in this environment. Any of us would because they're horrible, horrible places. People need to be treated in the community. Mm. Uh, nice to have you on the programme, uh, Emily uh, Kiara. Uh, that is uh, Emily Rakete, uh, People Against Prisons Aotearoa spokesperson. Uh, says someone here, uh, drug and alcohol treatment and literacy programs should be the priority in assuring a successful rehabilitation. Uh, and, um, yes, thank you very much for your feedback this afternoon. Uh, we're really uh, loving your company. Um, we uh, think we're going to be crossing to um, uh, the situation. The situation, if you uh, know, we may not have the time. But anyway, just... Uh, just uh, an update here on the latest news. Uh, just for your safety, raw sewage is running down Woodward Street in Wellington and on to Lambton Quay, which is another Wellington pipe failure. So you'll, we'll hear more about it on RNZ. We may or may not cross to it before the end of the programme, but you will definitely hear more about it on uh, Checkpoint. Now, there are many in the workplace who have little or no knowledge of how to turn on a computer. When Alan Sutcliffe put out an online survey for workers at Auckland manufacturing company Solo Plastics, they realised that many did not know how to turn on a computer or use a mouse or did not feel confident to do that, reports Marta Steenan in Stuff. Few had computers at home or smartphones, so a period of training was organised and by Sutcliffe's accounts, the results are incredible. With us to discuss is Competence Sector Manager, manager Jan Vanessa-Roy. Jan, welcome to the programme. Kia ora, Wallace. Nice to talk to someone who's also working up to five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that's, that is true. But uh, so your, your, your company, your outfit, you go into workplaces and you actually do upskill people who have little knowledge of, say, computers, smartphones, tablets, 
or such like? Yes, so we work with a network of providers throughout New Zealand who um, mainly work with the New Zealand manufacturing industry. Um, we've found over the past few years that um, calls from industry have really um, flagged the need for digital skills, digital literacy. Um, it's not happening. We've got a lot of valued workers who have been on the factory floor 10, 20 years, um, even 25 years in some cases, got real good institutional knowledge, a lot of yeah. mana on the factory floor, but they just don't have those digital skills. So we go in and we help um, we help bring those digital skills up to scratch, really. Yeah. I guess I brought this up too, uh, Jan, because, you know... Uh there are there are many listening to RNZ who might think that you know who who doesn't know how to use a computer who doesn't know how to use a tablet or a smartphone, but actually there is quite a constituency in our community yarn that actually don't have computers at home. That's true. That's true. And up until now, they haven't necessarily needed to have computers in the workplace, so they haven't yeah. been forced to get involved in digital literacy. Um, and often their kids they'll they'll hand over those digital duties at home to their children. Right. Um, I remember when I was, I was a kid, I'd be the one who would be programming the VCR. Um, and, and now these days, it's kids who are programming the smart TV and, and doing all that sort of stuff, setting up the wireless at home, wireless internet at home. Um, and the adults, the parents, they go to work. Um, up until now, they had no real need uh, to get involved with digital technologies. We're seeing a real change in the New Zealand manufacturing industry. We're seeing what's uh, coming in is what's known as Industry 4.0, the fourth industrial revolution, which is the networking of technologies throughout um, a factory floor to create value um, and real sort of uh, focused on data. Data is becoming more and more crucial and we need, or the industry needs, those workers to have respect and understanding of data um, mm. and they can't do that if they can't even turn on a computer, really. What do you think of this? Actually, Russell, this reminds me of this, uh, that, that great Ken Loach film uh, that won the Palm d'Or about four years ago, and the main pr- protagonist, he was an extraordinary skilled tradesperson but had made, been made redundant, trying to fill in mm. the benefit, uh, mm. a, 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 and he didn't know what a mouse was, so he tried to run the yeah. mouse up the side of the computer. <laughs> you know, it yeah. was just really, he was a very skilled person, but he just didn't have that language of computers. Yeah, I, I'm not... Entirely surprised to hear that that many people don't know how to use right. computers because we've been drifting away from computers to devices for a while. But if people also aren't able to use a smartphone for whatever reason, then that you, you, I mean, you get into real citizenship issues. There, it becomes a partic- participation in society issue. Um, I'm not quite sure what you do about it, Jan. I think the best thing to do is, is really admit that there is an issue and then sort of focus on that. Um, and if it can be done through the workplace or it can be done through anywhere, really, it's the, the, the best thing to do is admit the issue and get involved in it. And the back Ken Loach film with that guy who was a skilled tradesperson but didn't have the skills, we're seeing that here in New Zealand, but we can't um, just make those people redundant. And there's no, there's no mm. need to do that. It's just bring them up, bring them up to speed, really. We don't have the... We don't have a disposable workforce. We don't have... There's a skill shortage across many industries. We can't just get rid of those people, and, and nobody wants to. No. They want to, keep them, they want to keep that valuable institutional knowledge and that, that as I said, that mana on the factory floor going. It's just, it's just really just brushing up on those skills. It doesn't take long. It's more of a confidence issue, really, than anything. And once they realise that they can do it, they aren't going to break anything, and they have got permission to play, almost. Um, mm. You'll see a really rapid increase. Yeah, Jan, I loved this story because it was all about giving these people pride in themselves and moving them forward and, and you know, instilling or, or uh, reinstalling their mana um, to, to move forward and move with society because if your employer doesn't help you with that, how, how else are you going to access that service? So 
Well done. I, yeah, I loved this story. Bravo. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just, just first, finally, can I just pick up on that, um, uh, Jan? Um, because yeah. one thing that uh, we you did see, and I thought that was actually a wonderful part of the story, is that, and what seems worth noting, that not only did morale really increase, so too did working relationships improve. Mm. You, 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 what you've got is you've got, um, you've got that kind of respect between workers as well. So you haven't got someone going over to one person with that knowledge on the floor and bringing them off their sort of job at all times. You know, what do I do here? What do I do there? So people sort of, their respect for each other and their respect in the workplace definitely elevates. Um, yeah, that, that's a very crucial part of it. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure. Really important. All right, nice to have you on the programme. That's uh, Jan Vanessa Roy there from Competence Sector Manager. It is 10 to 5. The panel RNZ National. Just jumping into the Friday mailbag uh, again. Um, now, um, more libraries uh, coming through. Loving the, 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 the library talk. But we also talked about um, having your personal identity too enmeshed in your job or your career on the panel this week. And Ali Jones said that... Her job is her love. They're so enmeshed that she can't separate them. And others suggested, well, maybe you should have some sort of hobby or something that, de- that doesn't define you. And someone wrote, most, job- most jobs are not fun. People get paid to do the not fun stuff to make a little capitalist hellscape function. If you're lucky to be in a position to have one th- that is one job that you love, have the decency to appreciate your very privileged position and try to have some consideration for those that have to grind for a living. That is most of the workforce. So that wasn't a um, that wasn't a, a jab at Ali, more so the the tenor of what was coming through. But just briefly around the panel, Ruth, do you define yourself by what you do, or do, are, are you more than that? I am more than a victim advocate. I mean, I love what I do, and I have been able to create uh, this role for myself, um, unpaid, I might say, but I have. it is my mahi, um, and it does define me. But, uh, you know, like you saw when I walked in, Wallace, I knit. I have a beautiful family. I live on a beautiful island. There is so much more to me than what I do during my 12 hours a day. Um, well, I, I haven't had a proper job for years, so I, I, <laughs> I don't define myself by my job. But I, I guess I am sort of bound up in the kind of things I do. But for me, it's really useful to step away from wrestling with words all the time. Um, which And one thing I do to do that is I play old disco records to confused elderly people in suburban <laughs> bars. Um, <laughs> 6.30 to 8pm tomorrow, K Road outside of the Lodge. That's Another, me. Yeah, yeah good old, good, some good old house, house beats with uh, DJ Russell. Actually, you're, you're quite a good DJ. Oh, thanks, mate. Yeah. Oh, there, there you go. go. Yeah, there, there's a little, little bit, bit of a plug for you. Now, uh, just, some, uh, just some breaking news. Uh, we talked about the raw sewage running down Woodward Street in Wellington and onto Lambton Quay just uh, 10 minutes ago. Uh, and uh, to give us a bit of an update on that, we have from the Wellington City Council, Richard McLean. Kia ora, Richard. Kia ora, Wallace. Yeah, what, what's the latest here? Uh, well, it's, it's a, a crap way to end the week um, in yes. the CBD in Wellington. And, but it's, it's a relatively small flow, and it's, uh, it was caused by some sort of blockage in a pipe, and our crews are there. Um, cool. They should be there now, if not already there. Mm. Just, Richard, when you, when, you, when you hear a report like this, another broken pipe, What's the psychology of this? What goes through your mind as a Wellington, as part of the Wellington City Council? 
Um, we feel sort of dismal. We feel we feel sort of slightly defeated. But the but the point is, we have to also put it in context. I mean, this is it's a small overflow. I mean, it is it's absolutely disgusting, and I've seen some video footage of it, and it's not something you want to see when you've just had your lunch. But um, mm. you know, we're we're working on it, and you know, unfortunately, these things happen from time to time, and it's probably caused by you know, a mini fatberg or uh, oh. tissues or, you know, something disgusting like that. Oh, happy Friday to you too, Richard. <laughs> and uh, you. Good and hey, nice to have you on the programme. Richard McLean there giving uh, uh, you an update there. And, and look, uh, <laughs> Ali Jones is listening there from Otatahi there. Look, I wasn't saying I don't have other interests or loves. <laughs> I have two gorgeous adult kids, a spunky husband and love karaoke, though. Oh, good <laughs> Go, Ali. Go, Ali. So, of course, absolutely. Uh, seven to five, uh, you're on the panel at uh, the National. Um, now... I thought we'd take you to uh, the South Island to end the programme. The small town of Wamaru has been featured in a new short documentary by Frank Film. The North Otago town is recognised as the steampunk capital of Aotearoa, even the world, and celebrated for its Victorian precinct, largely built from stone from one of the local quarries. Since 2009, the Steampunk New Zealand Festival has been held in the town in June, for a weekend of dressing up and celebrating with us now is, I must say, a celebrated artist and owner of the Grain Store Gallery, the one and only Donna Dementes with us. Donna, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Wallace. I love your program. I'm really chuffed to be here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, mutual admiration because I've long been a admirer of your artwork. What? Um, I remember you in Dunedin, yeah. Well, yeah, the good days, right? Now, how um, long have you been calling Waimaru home? Um, 26 years now. I can't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what is it that keeps you there? Oh, everything. I just I love the architecture. I love the light. I love the weirdos. I love the size of the town. It's like a kind of village. Um, I love that I can do what I want and afford to rent space. That's probably yeah. the main thing, actually. <laughs> it's a very encouraging community. I, 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 I must say, I, I did have a bit of an epiphany when I, yeah, for the first time many, many years ago, went to Oamaru, uh, and this was when the, this new precinct was up and running, this uh, Victorian yeah. precinct, and I was just astonished both at what I was seeing in terms of history alive, what was there in terms of great art, great craft, great beer, great bookbinding. It's really become quite a community, hasn't Donna? Yeah, well, it's, I think, partly because it hasn't been gentrified, like it hasn't been turned into something that only rich business people can afford. So it's always yeah. protected the underdogs, you know, and the people like us who would be out of there if we had to pay higher rent. So it's always been that safeguarding of culture as opposed to just commerce. Yeah, so the, rents, the, the rent thing is huge, isn't it? Cheap yeah. rents are good oh, for yeah. culture. Yeah, um, and it's, uh, it's done on the basis that, you know, things that are more valuable in the sense that they bring people to town get lesser rent and I think that's really fair you know I think people who just want to make money they pay more rent and that's that's a good system I think that's actually how it should be yeah bravo um, it, it actually reminds me a little bit of um, Whanganui where I, we, yes, we visited um, yep. Yep. again that same thing we, we got we got the uh, tour from Anthony Tonnen who oh, actually used to be a professional oh, tour guide, so he's damn good at he's it. He's a national treasure. He's a he wonderful is. human being. But just just that thing of having all these huge buildings that that don't oh, that, that need repurposing. Because, yeah, yeah, they couldn't afford to pull them down. That's the only reason they're still there. And it's is so that remarkable the that they're, and how they're beautiful are they? <laughs> yeah, oh my no, god, this, the architecture yeah, is stunning. stunning. Eh?
Maybe it's a bit of a plug, but if, if, if you haven't been to Wamaru, uh, book yourself in and take yourself there, maybe for oh, a weekend. For sure. or for, yep. uh, you, you, you won't regret it. It's a very, very cool little precinct there. But just, just this... wait till spring, because I'm kind of wagging a bit till then. I've got another I... job. <laughs> 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 Which um, is a make-believe cool town. <laughs> Donna, uh, but, but this, this steampunk thing, uh, yeah. some people love it. Some people... I'm just... Well, I think I'm just a compulsive actual punk, and as soon as something's fashionable, I friggin' hate it. So I just, I've always had to skirt around the edges and take the mickey out of it. But I also think it's kind of poignant, because at the moment, with all the space exploration nonsense, because I'm thinking, look after planet Earth, you know, and just get on with, you know, using the detritus that we've got to make beauty and art, but just leave all the other planets and the moon and all the rest of it out of it, you know. It's like, get on with doing things here, so I just do it as a needling thing, and also a feminist thing, because it's a real boys own kind of movement, the steampunk thing, it's all guns, and I just like being yeah. a different kind of entity in it, and we're, we're sort of anti-moon hater, and just for fun, it's fun and colour, and I appreciate all the people that get into it, and I love them, they're all great people, but I just can't help being a little shit, and um, <laughs> have an anti-attitude, I can't help, I wish I could sometimes. Rock and roll, Donna. <laughs> they're rebellious no more, aren't they? <laughs> Hey, while we have yeah, you, yeah. while we have yeah. you, how, how's your practice going? How's your how's your work going? Oh, really good. I've um, oh, I just I love what I do, and I just feel so grateful that I get to do it. And um, yeah, I'm doing a really special project at the moment for the Moonshine Museum down in Gore. And Gore. Hey. Topics topics of tea and temperance, which I take to be moderation, not abstinence. So all the temperance tea recipes. Are nice one, Donna. Yeah. Donna Domenti, <laughs> thanks, thanks for your time. And uh, Ruth Money and Russell Run, kia ora to you both. Kia ora. And to Emma Hurley for putting the show together.